Part two of Tchaikovsky and his orchestral music by Louis Biancoli. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Overture Fantasy, Romeo and Juliet. Shortly before the overture fantasy on Shakespeare's tragedy took shape in Tchaikovsky's mind, he had been jilted by the French soprano Desiree Artaud, then enjoying a prodigious vogue as opera singer in St. Petersburg. The twenty-eight-year-old composer and Mademoiselle Artaud had become engaged in 1868, but the lady promptly left him and married the Spanish baritone Padilla y Ramos. The theory is that Tchaikovsky's composition grew out of the resulting emotional upset, or at least that his frame of mind conduced to tragic expression on a romantic theme. The Artaud episode acted as stimulus, but the concrete suggestion for using Shakespeare's tragedy in a symphonic work came from Balakirev during a walk with Tchaikovsky and their friend Kashkin on a lovely day in May. Balakirev, head of the group of five young Russian composers, Tchaikovsky was not one of them, bent on achieving a pure national idiom, went so far as to outline the scheme to Tchaikovsky, unfolding the possibilities of dramatic and musical coordination so vividly that the young composer took eagerly to the project. Balakirev even furnished the keys and hints for themes and development. However, four months went by before Tchaikovsky plunged into the actual composition of the overture fantasy. Balakirev kept in close touch with him and virtually supervised the process. His dogmatism and narrowness often bored and irritated the young composer. Balakirev accepted this and rejected that, was pitilessly graphic in his comments, and yet somehow egged on the hypersensitive Tchaikovsky to completion of a taxing assignment. Finally, in January of the following year, Balakirev and Rimsky-Korsakov came to visit him, and he could write, My overture pleased them very much, and it also pleases me. Still, the Moscow public responded coolly, and Tchaikovsky felt obliged to revise much of the score that summer. Further rewriting was done for the definitive edition brought out in 1881. The thematic scheme is easy to follow. Friar Lawrence takes his bow in a solemn andante introduction for clarinets and bassoons in F-sharp minor. The feud of the Montagues and Capulets rages in a B minor allegro. Romeo and Juliet enter via muted violins and English horn in a famous theme in D-flat major, suggesting Tchaikovsky's song, Wer nur die Sehnsucht kennt, None but the Lonely Heart. The strife-torn Montague and Capulets return for another bout. Chords of muted violins and violas, hinting at mystery and secrecy, bring back the love music. The themes of Romeo and Juliet, the embattled families, and Friar Lawrence are heard in succession, followed by a fierce orchestral crash, and the storm subsides to a roll of kettle-drums. Francesca da Rimini, Fantasia for Orchestra after Dante, Opus 32 Written in 1876, Tchaikovsky's symphonic treatment of the celebrated love story of Paolo and Francesca grew out of an original project for an opera on the same subject. He abandoned the idea of an opera when the libretto submitted to him proved impossible. Later, Tchaikovsky again read through the fifth canto of Dante's Inferno, in which the tragedy is related. 
Stirred by the verses and also by Gustave Doré's illustrations, he resolved to write an orchestral fantasy on the subject. Prefacing the score are the following lines from Dante's great poem. Dante arrives in the second circle of hell. He sees that here the incontinent are punished, and their punishment is to be continually tormented by the crudest winds under a dark and gloomy air. Among those tortured ones he recognizes Francesca da Rimini, who tells her story. There is no greater pain than to recall a happy time in wretchedness, and this thy teacher knows. But if thou hast such desire to learn the first root of our love, I will do like one who weeps and tells. One day, for pastime, we read of Lancelot, how love constrained him. We were alone and without all suspicion. Several times reading urged our eyes to meet and changed the color of our faces. But one moment alone it was that overcame us. When we read of how the fond smile was kissed by such a lover, he who shall never be divided from me kissed my mouth all trembling. The book, and he who wrote it, was a galeotto. That day we read in it no farther. While the one spirit thus spake, the other wept so that I fainted with pity, as if I had been dying, and fell as a dead body falls. Tchaikovsky used to insist that the following titles be given in the program book at performances of his Fantasia. 1. Introduction, The Gateway to the Inferno, Leave All Hope Behind, All Ye Who Enter Here, Tortures and Agonies of the Condemned. 2. Francesca tells the story of her tragic love for Paolo. 3. The Turmoil of Hades. Conclusion. The composition starts with a descriptive setting in which a sinister, gruesome picture is painted of the second circle of Dante's Inferno. The awesome scene, with its haunting driving winds, desolate moans, and dread terror, is repeated at the end. In the middle occurs a section featuring a clarinet in a plaintive and tender melody heard against string pizzicati. This instantly evokes the image of Francesca telling her tragic tale, which mounts in fervor and reaches its shattering crisis before the wailing winds of Dante's netherworld close in again. Ballet Suites Suite from the ballet Swan Lake, Le Lac des Signes, all told, Tchaikovsky wrote three ballets, plus a scattering of incidental dances for operas, beginning with the surviving Voyevod fragments. The composition of Swan Lake, first of the trio, the others being The Sleeping Beauty and The Nutcracker, originated in a twofold impulse, the need for ready cash and a fondness for French ballet music, especially the works of Delibes and the Giselle of Adolphe Adam, which Tchaikovsky regarded as archetype. He evidently thought little of his initial effort, for shortly after the Moscow production of Swan Lake, he recorded in his diary, Lately I have heard Delibes' very clever music. Swan Lake is poor stuff compared to it. Nothing during the last few years has charmed me so greatly as this ballet of Delibes and Carmen. Per contra, the same entry bemoans the deterioration of German music, the immediate offender being the cold, obscure, and pretentious C minor symphony of Brahms. Tchaikovsky was probably sincere when he described his own ballet as poor stuff compared with Delibes. That was in 1877. 
Performance of Swan Lake at the Bolshoi Theater had been flat, shabby, and badly costumed. A conductor inexperienced with elaborate ballet scores had directed. Modeste Tchaikovsky, in the biography of his brother, testifies to this. Numbers were omitted as undanceable, and pieces from other ballets substituted. At length only a third of the original remained, and not the best. The ballet dropped out of the Moscow repertory, and it was not until 1894 that the enterprising Marius Petipa wrote to Moscow for the full score and produced Swan Lake with brilliant success at the Mariinsky Theatre in St. Petersburg on January 15, 1895. It has since remained a repertory staple, both the current Ballet Russe and the Ballet Theatre having staged it successfully. Pavlova, Karzavina, and Markova, among others, have interpreted the heroine Odette, and Prince Siegfried has been embodied by Nijinsky, Lifar, Mordkin, and Dolan. Swan Lake was one of the first ballets witnessed in his youth by Sergei Diaghilev, founder of the famous Ballet Russe. Tchaikovsky first refers to Swan Lake in a letter to Rimsky-Korsakov, dated September 10, 1875. I accepted the work partly because I need the money and because I have long cherished a desire to try my hand at this type of music. V. P. Begich, stage manager of the Bolshoi, offered 800 rubles, less than $500, and in turn granted Tchaikovsky's request for a story from the Age of Chivalry, making the sketch himself. Tchaikovsky set to work in August 1875 and had the first two acts planned out in a fortnight, but the score was not completed till the following March and for some reason held up for performance until February 1877. The story, possibly of Rhenish origin, tells how Prince Siegfried woos and wins Odette, the Swan Queen. At a celebration, the prince is told he must soon choose a bride. A flight of swans overhead distracts him, and a hunt is proposed. Siegfried and the hunters are at the lakeside. It is evening. Odette appears surrounded by a bevy of swan maidens. She begs the hunters to spare the swans. They are maidens under the spell of the enchanter Rothbart. Swans by day, they return briefly to human form at midnight. The prince and Odette fall in love. Siegfried swears she will be his wife. Odette cautions him about Rotbart's evil power. Breach of promise will mean her death. Rotbart brings his own daughter to the court ball, disguised as Odette. Siegfried makes the false choice of bride, and the pledge is broken. Discovering Rotbart's ruse, he hastens to Odette, who at first rebuffs him. Siegfried blames Rotbart, and Odette relents. At length, Rotbart whips up a storm which floods the forest. When Siegfried vows he will die with Odette, Rotbart's spell is shattered and all ends happily. Tchaikovsky's close friend and collaborator Kashkin is authority for the statement that an adagio section in Swan Lake was a love duet in the opera Undine before it found new lodgings. Conversely, a danse russe in the group of piano pieces Opus 40 was written for Swan Lake, thus balancing matters. Like The Sleeping Beauty and The Nutcracker, Swan Lake is famed for its waltz. 
the score brims with typical Tchaikovian melody, and probably for the first time in ballet music a scheme of light motifs is used, two of the principal subjects being the tremulous theme of the swans in flight and the hauntingly wistful theme of Odette herself, assigned to the oboe against soft strings and harp arpeggios. The music adjusts itself snugly to the technique of pure classical ballet, and solos and ensembles are contrasted adroitly. Suite from the Ballet, The Sleeping Beauty, Opus 66 Based on Perrault's famous fairy tale, Tchaikovsky's Sleeping Beauty Ballet dates from the summer of 1889. Its music is generally regarded as superior to that of the Swan Lake Ballet and inferior to that of the Nutcracker Suite. Few ballet scores are so suitable in mood and style for the action they accompany. The music is truly melodious in Tchaikovsky's lighter vein. The fantasy is conveyed in bright, glittering colors, and, as Mrs. Newmarch pointed out, the music never descends to the commonplace level of the ordinary ballet music. There are thirty numbers in all, many of them, especially the waltz, endearing in their lilting and haunting grace. The work was first produced in St. Petersburg on January 2, 1890. In the early twenties, Diaghilev, the great ballet producer, revived the work in London and elsewhere with immense artistic éclat. Fragments of the ballet have been gathered in the Monte Carlo Ballet Russe's production of Aurora's Wedding. Suite from the Ballet, The Nutcracker, Opus 71A The usual fit of depression assailed Tchaikovsky while composing the music for his Nutcracker Ballet, based on E.T.A. Hoffmann's story, Nutcracker und Mausekönig, Nutcracker and the Mouse King. Commissioned by the St. Petersburg Opera early in 1891, the work was slow in taking shape. At length, on June 25, Tchaikovsky completed the sketches for the projected ballet. What had taken him weeks should have been finished in five days, he lamented. No, the old man is breaking up, he wrote. Not only does his hair drop out or turn as white as snow, not only does he lose his teeth, which refuse their service, not only do his eyes weaken and tire easily, not only do his feet walk badly or drag themselves along, but bit by bit he loses the capacity to do anything at all. The ballet is infinitely worse than the Sleeping Beauty. So much is certain." Apparently the first-night audience agreed with him, for at the premiere in the Imperial Opera House the response was chilling. Yet an earlier concert performance of the music had drawn plaudits from both public and press. The ballet's failure, however, was easy to explain. The producer, Marius Patipa, fell ill, and the work of staging the new ballet was entrusted to a man of inadequate skill and experience. Then the audience found it hard to thrill to the spectacle of children dashing coyly about in the first act, and ballettomanes, accustomed to beauty and glamour in their favourite ballerinas, found the girl dancing the part of the sugar-plum fairy anything but appetising to look at. Act One of the ballet is concerned with a Christmas tree party. The scene is overrun with children and mechanical dolls. Little Marie is drawn to a German nutcracker, which is made to resemble an old man with huge jaws. During a game, some boys accidentally break the nutcracker. Marie is saddened by the tragedy. 
That night she lies awake in bed, sleepless with grief over the broken utensil. Finally she jumps out of bed and goes to take one more look at the beloved nutcracker. Suddenly strange sounds reach her ears. Mice! The tree now seems to come to life and grow massive. Toys begin to stir into action, followed by cakes and candies. Even the nutcracker creaks into life. Presently a battle arises between the mice and the toys. The nutcracker challenges the mouse king to a duel. Just as the nutcracker is about to be felled, Marie hurls a shoe and kills the royal rodent. And, of course, the nutcracker promptly is transformed into a handsome prince. Arm in arm, they leave for his magic kingdom. The scene now changes to a mountain of jam for the second act. This is the land ruled by the sugar-plum fairy, who is awaiting the arrival of Marie and her princely escort. The court cheers jubilantly when the happy pair appears on the scene. What follows is the series of dances usually heard in the concert hall. The sequence runs as follows. Miniature Overture, Allegro Giusto, B-flat 4-4, featuring two sharply differentiated themes, scored largely for the higher instruments. March, Tempo di Marcia Vivo, G major 4-4, in which the main theme is chanted by clarinets, horns, and trumpets as the children make their measured entrance. Dance of the Sugar Plum Fairy, Andante con Moto, E minor 2-4, here the Celesta gives out the entrancing melody with pizzicato strings accompanying. Russian dance, Trepec, Tempo de Trepec, Moto Vivace, G major, 2-4, which grows out of a brisk rhythmic figure heard at the beginning. Arabian dance, Allegretto, G minor, 3-8, intended to convey the idea of coffee. A melody in oriental mood is announced by the clarinet, later picked up by the violins. Chinese dance. Allegretto moderato, B-flat major, 4-4, four, four, intended to convey the idea of tea. The melody is given to the flute against a pizzicato figure sustained by bassoons and double basses. Dance of the Mirletons, moderato assai, D major, 2-4. For the main theme, three flutes join forces, then comes a different melody given out by the trumpet in F-sharp minor before the chief subject is back. Waltz of the Flowers, Tempo di Valsa, D major, 3-4, woodwinds and horns, aided by a sharp cadenza, offer some introductory phrases. Then the horns give out the fetching main melody. Soon the clarinets take it up. Flute, oboe, and strings bring in other themes, and the waltz comes to a brilliant close. Concertos Concerto for Violin and Orchestra in D Major, Opus 35 Before occupying its permanent niche in the repertory, Tchaikovsky's Violin Concerto had to run a fierce gauntlet of fault-finding. Friend and foe alike took pokes at it. The wonder is that it survived at all. Even Madame von Meck, Tchaikovsky's patroness saint, picked serious flaws in the work, and the lady was known for her unwavering faith in Tchaikovsky's genius. As a matter of fact, Tchaikovsky, often an unsparing critic of his own music, started the trend by finding objection with the Andante and rewriting it whole. That was in April 1878. He was spending the spring at Clarens, Switzerland. 
Joseph Kotek, a Russian violinist and composer, was staying with him. Tchaikovsky and Kotek went over the work several times, and evidently saw eye to eye on its merits. Then came the first outside rebuff. Madame von Meck was frankly dissatisfied and showed why in detail. Tchaikovsky meekly wrote back, pleading guilty on some counts, but advancing the hope that in time his lady bountiful might come to like the concerto. He stood pat on the first movement, which Madame von Meck particularly assailed. "'Your frank judgment on my violin concerto pleased me very much,' he writes. "'It would have been very disagreeable to me if you, from any fear of wounding the petty pride of a composer, had kept back your opinion.' However, I must defend a little the first movement of the concerto. Of course, it houses, as does every piece that serves virtuoso purposes, much that appeals chiefly to the mind. Nevertheless, the themes are not painfully evolved. The plan of this movement sprang suddenly in my head and quickly ran into its mold. I shall not give up the hope that in time the piece will give you greater pleasure." Next came a more serious setback from Leopold Auer, the widely respected Petersburg virtuoso. Auer was then professor of violin at the Imperial Conservatory and the Tsar's court violinist. Tchaikovsky, hoping to induce Auer to launch the concerto on its career, originally dedicated the work to him. But Auer glanced through the score and promptly decided against it. It was, quote, impossible to play, end quote. Tchaikovsky later made a quaintly worded entry in his diary to the effect that Auer's pronouncement cast this unfortunate child of my imagination for many years to come into the limbo of hopelessly forgotten things. Justly or unjustly, he even suspected Auer of having prevailed on the violinist Emile Saray to abstain from playing it in St. Petersburg. The ice finally broke when Adolf Brodsky, after two years of admitted laziness and indecision, took it up and succeeded in performing it with the Vienna Philharmonic on December 4, 1881. Yet even Brodsky, despite his wholehearted espousal of the work, complained to Tchaikovsky that he had crammed too many difficulties into it. Previously, in Paris, Brodsky had experimented with the concerto by playing it to La Roche, who, whether because of Brodsky's rendering or the concerto's inherent character, confessed he could gain no true idea of the work. Even the premier went against the new concerto. In the first place, Brodsky had to do some strong propagandizing to get Hans Richter to include the work on a philharmonic program. Then only one rehearsal was granted. The orchestral parts, according to Brodsky, swarmed with errors. At the rehearsal, nobody liked the new work. Besides, Richter wanted to make cuts, but Brodsky promptly scotched the idea. Finally, during the performance, the musicians, still far from having mastered the music, accompanied everything pianissimo, not to go smash. Of course, Brodsky outlines the chain of contretemps in a letter to Tchaikovsky, partly to assuage the composer's pained feelings on receiving news of the Vienna fiasco. For the premiere ended with a broadside of hisses, completely obliterating the polite applause coming from some friendly quarters. As the coup de grace, Edward Hanslick, Europe's uncrowned ruler of musical destinies, wrote a scathing notice, which Philip Hale rendered as follows. 
For a while the concerto has proportion, is musical and is not without genius, but soon savagery gains the upper hand and lords it to the end of the first movement. The violin is no longer played, it is yanked about, it is torn asunder, it is beaten black and blue. I do not know whether it is possible for anyone to conquer these hair-raising difficulties, but I do know that Mr. Brodsky martyrized his hearers as well as himself. The adagio, with its tender national melody, almost conciliates, almost wins us, but it breaks off abruptly to make way for a finale that puts us in the midst of the brutal and wretched jollity of a Russian chemist. We see wild and vulgar faces, we hear curses, we smell bad brandy. Friedrich Vischer once asserted, in reference to lascivious paintings, that there are pictures which stink to the eye. Tchaikovsky's violin concerto brings to us for the first time the horrid idea that there may be music that stinks in the ear. The pestiferous odors of the Hanslick blast further embittered Tchaikovsky's already gloomy disposition, and it is not surprising to learn that the review haunted him till the day he died. But Brodsky's unflagging devotion to the concerto, together with his practical missionary zeal in acquainting the European public with it, finally started the concerto on its path of glory. Nor was that the end of time's revenge, wrote Pitt Sanborn. Hanslick was to write glowingly of the pathetique symphony, and in due course Leopold Auer not only played the unplayable concerto himself, but made a specialty of teaching it to his pupils, who have carried its gospel the world over. But while the belated triumphs were accruing, Tchaikovsky died. The dedication is to Brodsky, who certainly earned it. The first movement, Allegro Moderato, D major 4-4, opens with a melody for strings and woodwind. Then the solo violin is heard in a cadenza-like sequence, followed by the first theme, Moderato Asse. A second theme, Molto Espressivo, is next discoursed by the violin in A major. Instead of the usual development, there is an intricate cadenza without accompaniment. A long and brilliant coda concludes the movement. The second movement, Canzonetta Andante 3-4, starts with the muted solo violin chanting, after a brief preface, a nostalgic theme in G minor. The flute and clarinet then offer the first phrase of this theme, and later the solo violin unreels a Chopinesque second subject in E-flat major, con anima, the clarinet offers an obligato of arpeggios when the first theme returns. The rousing finale is an allegro vivacissimo in D major 2-4. The rondo-like last movement, typically Russian in theme and rhythm, develops from the two folk-like melodies. Listeners will be reminded of the well-known Russian dance, the trepek, in this movement. The music builds up at a brisk pace to a crashing climax. Concerto for Piano and Orchestra in B-flat minor, number 1, opus 23. Like the violin concerto, Tchaikovsky's great piano concerto in B-flat minor went through a grueling ordeal of abusive rebuffs and setbacks before becoming established as one of the world's most beloved symphonic scores. 
In the case of the violin work, it was Leopold Auer who first flouted it as unplayable and then made it a popular repertory standby. Nicholas Rubinstein is the name linked with the early stages of the piano concerto. After exoriating the concerto in its first state, Rubinstein grew to like it, humbly apologized for his blunder, and made practical amends by playing it in public with huge success. Early in its composition, we find Tchaikovsky writing to his brother Anatole, I am so completely absorbed in the composition of a piano concerto. I am anxious that Rubinstein should play it at his concert. The work proceeds very slowly and does not turn out well. However, I stick to my intentions and hammer piano passages out of my brain. The result is nervous irritability. Begun in November 1874, the concerto was completed the following month. Rubinstein was then invited to hear the work. Rubinstein and one or two musical colleagues gathered in one of the classrooms of the Moscow Conservatory. Unluckily, the great man was in a somber mood that day. Tchaikovsky sat down and played the first movement. No comment from Rubinstein. Then he played the Andantino. Still no comment. Finally, Tchaikovsky ran through the last movement. He turned around expectantly. Rubinstein said nothing. Uneasily, Tchaikovsky asked him point-blank, What do you think of it? And the storm broke. It was vulgar, cheap, pianistic, completely valueless, retorted Rubinstein, who then stepped up to the piano and began to burlesque the music. I left the room without saying a word and went upstairs, writes the distraught Tchaikovsky. I could not have spoken for anger and agitation. Presently Rubinstein came to me and, seeing how upset I was, called me into another room. There he repeated that my concerto was impossible, pointed out many places where it needed to be completely revised, and said that if I would suit the concerto to his requirements, he would bring it out at his concert. I shall not alter a single note, he replied. I shall publish the work precisely as it stands. This intention I actually carried out. Tchaikovsky did make some alterations in the score, however. Tchaikovsky changed his mind about dedicating the score to Rubinstein, conferring the honor on Hans von Bülow instead. Von Bülow played the world premiere in Boston on October 25, 1875, and in a letter to the Russian composer conveyed his enthusiasm for the work. The ideas are so original, so noble, so powerful. The details are so interesting, and though there are many of them, they do not impair the clearness and the unity of the work. The form is so mature, ripe, distinguished for style, for intention and labor are everywhere concealed. I should weary you if I were to enumerate all the characteristics of your work, characteristics which compel me to congratulate equally the composer as well as those who shall enjoy the work actively or passively, respectively. Later Tchaikovsky, reading reports of how Americans were acclaiming his concerto, wrote, Think what healthy appetites these Americans must have. Each time Bülow was obliged to repeat the whole finale of my concerto. Nothing like this happens in our own country. The concerto opens with a striking theme, Allegro non troppo e molto maestoso, in D-flat major 3-4, familiar to music lovers of all tastes the world over. 
The strings take it up after some brief preluding, and it is then repeated, with rhythmic modification, by the solo piano. There is a piano cadenza, and the theme comes back by way of the strings minus double basses against an ascending obbligato from the piano. For reasons best known to himself, Tchaikovsky never allows the imposing theme to return to the scene. The Blind Beggar Tune is the name often applied to the piano theme serving as chief subject of the main section of the first movement, Allegro con Spirito, B-flat minor. Tchaikovsky heard it sung on a street in Kamenko, and he wrote to his patroness friend, Madame von Meck, It is curious that in Russia every blind beggar sings exactly the same tune with the same refrain. I have used part of this refrain in my piano concerto. Horns and woodwind discourse the second subject, poco meno mosso, A-flat major, before the solo instrument turns to it. The song-like first theme of the second movement, Andantino Semplici, D-flat major 6-8, is given out first by the flute, with the oboe and clarinets bringing in the second subject against a bassoon accompaniment. The Prestissimo middle section in F major has the spirit of a scherzo. A waltz enters the scheme by way of violas and cellos, Tchaikovsky's brother, Modeste, insisted the theme of this waltz derived from a French song the brothers Tchaikovsky used to sing and whistle in their boyhood days. The rondo-like finale develops from three themes, the first of which, a lively dance in Cossack style, is given out by the piano. A further folk-like quality is observable in the second theme, and the violins later chant the third of the finale's themes. In the brisk coda, the Cossack-like first theme is given the dominant role. End of Part 2